Hello, everybody. I'm back with an all-new episode of the all-new, all-awesome podcast. Good to be talking to all of you guys. And, uh, man, it's we're kind of back in the thick of things this week with the uh, impeachment trial. And it's another one of those weeks, I think, where it's kind of hard to concentrate. A lot going on in the world. Um, a lot of distractions. And... Uh, Hopefully, it'll all essentially be over by uh, next week, but I, I feel like for me, uh, between the impeachment trial, uh, work has been really crazy lately. I haven't had as much time to uh, watch as much as I would like and, and take in as much as I would like. Um, I, uh, I did want to talk about, though... You know, since it is uh, especially kind of a crazy week this week in the world, it feels appropriate to talk about a show that I've talked a lot about on the podcast before, um, which is Shit's Creek, which really for me, since the beginning of the pandemic, it's been a show that has really been a comfort food for me uh, that I've been watching, uh, you know, just a little, little by little. Uh, every week I've been watching, um, a couple of episodes per week. I've taken some breaks here and there to sort of watch some other shows. Um, especially when time is tight. Um, occasionally I would kind of get distracted and, and watch, uh, something else instead of Shit's Creek. But a lot of times I've watched an episode like during my lunch break from work, um, or, you know, just whenever I can fit one in. Luckily they're only, you know, uh, like 22 minute episodes. So it's easy to fit them in when you can, but it's, I talked a lot, a lot about the show, you know, it was on my list of best of the year. I've talked about it getting nominated for various awards, but in any case, um, I had sort of been saving the last couple of episodes of the show and, uh, Rebecca had been watching it two sort of separately. I think she had been watching it over a much longer period of time, actually, as long as it took me to watch it. I think she had, had just been watching it sort of like intermittently over the last couple of years. Um, and in any case, we actually finally got to about the same place in the show where we both only had a couple episodes left. And so given the fact that Dan Levy hosted SNL this, this past weekend, it felt like a perfect time to, uh, you know, l make time to just watch those last couple of episodes together right before his SNL episode. So we did that over the weekend. And so I finally finished uh, the entirety of Schitt's Creek after all this time. And I think I've told this story maybe before, but the funny thing is that I actually had tickets last year to see the Paley Fest event for Schitt's Creek for the final season, which I was very excited about. And this was supposed to be, I think, um, trying to remember, like March or April, I think. So it was sort of right. It was one of those like early things to get canceled um, as the pandemic was getting worse last year. And I somehow got it in my head that uh, I was going to just binge the show over a short period of time and finish up the whole series 
before the Paley Fest so that I was totally caught up before that event. And um, of course, that didn't happen once once the pandemic hit and the, um, you know, we were working from home and, and all these events got canceled. I had already started watching the show. But at that point, I kind of slowed down and was like, all right, you know what? I'm just going to dole this out. I'm going to, uh, you know, just watch it in a more leisurely pace. And, you know, again, like I said, I would occasionally get sidetracked with other shows um, for a while. Like Harley Quinn became my sort of go-to lunchtime show. Uh, and I binge watched through that. But ultimately, I kept coming back to Shit's Creek. And I kept enjoying it more and more, you know, as it went on. I feel like it just was is one of those comedies that got better and better as it went. And the, the cast sort of gelled more. The jokes became sharper. It sort of added more heart to the show as it went, but not in a way that detracted from the comedy at all. I think, if anything, the, the heart that the show really began to have after the first season um, – just accentuated the humor um and the cast just kept getting better and better um you know i think eugene levy and Catherine o'hara being kind of the more experienced people on the show they were sort of more fully polished from the get-go but then i think dan levy and annie murphy in particular just kept getting better as the show went and really grew into their roles uh by the end and i will say like the final couple of episodes were so well done. It was one of those things where I was thinking like, how would I have done it differently? And it's hard to think of too much that I would have done differently. Um, you know, it ended, you know, it almost felt a little abrupt only because, um, you know, it felt in a lot of ways, like by season six, the show was just hitting its stride and there could have been a lot more show to do. But at the same time, it sort of ended on a you know on such a high note of leaving you wanting more um, that it's hard to argue with the way that it went out. I mean, it, a lot of a lot of these shows end up going on way too long and sort of wearing out their welcome. Shit's Creek really went out on a high note, and it and it uh, because it knew when it was ending, it really was able to sort of have a very purposeful, very deliberate, a very uh, rewarding ending. And and by the way, I mean, I was sort of mentally prepared going into those last couple episodes for it to be maybe lighter on laugh-out-loud humor and more heavy on sort of the emotional core of the show. Um, but it really, I mean, there were just hilarious moments in those last couple episodes. Even the finale, I mean, it had some moments that were so unexpected and just funny that I just, I, I was very uh, surprised, pleasantly surprised at how much I laughed during the final episode, which again, I mean, the, the, you know, the usual thing for a show like this is to get kind of schmaltzy and, uh, you know, reflective in that final episode. But uh, even if it did that to an extent, it also really gave you some hilarious and memorable moments. So at the end of the day, I mean, I think just see, finally seeing those final episodes of the show definitely cemented for me that this was one of the really great 
sitcoms of the last decade. Um, I mean, for me, you know, I think about, um, I guess it depends how far back you go, but let's say the last 15 years, obviously you have uh, The Office, 30 Rock, Community, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, Parks and Rec. Um, you know, those are some of the big ones for me. And then you add in some, uh, you know, I could I could name uh, Broad City, a couple others. In the last year or two, I would put What We Do in the Shadows in that category. Um, the Good Place, certainly, uh, when it was at its best, was in that category. Um, but I would now put Schitt's Creek in that same category, I think, because um, it just was such a good... Uh, such a well-done sitcom that had some just absolutely incredible performances from the main cast, really good joke writing, really good moments, and yet a lot of heart, but not in a way that detracted at all from the show. It was done in a way that really made you care about the characters and, and that never um, undermined the comedy in any way. And I think they're also just, I mean, a lot of shows sort of start out with a, a specific premise and then sort of move away from that premise. Um, I think what's interesting and commendable about Chips Creek is that from the beginning, it was about a family that, you know, had was this rich family that lost their money, had to move to this small town and sort of learned to slowly but surely accept that and sort of embrace, you know, this this new status quo is having to work their way back up and embrace this kind of quirky small town um, for all of its, you know, um, like for all the things that were not so great about it, they found sort of the the community there. And that was never that never stopped being what the show is about it was very consistent in sort of um sticking to that theme and ultimately delivering a good ending to the story that started at the beginning of the show and again not many uh sitcoms have ever done that that i can think of again a lot of sitcoms end up going on so long that they sort of become something very different than they were when they started. Um, you know, even something like The Office, obviously at, at some point Steve Carell left, but the show kept going and it sort of just became about other things. Um, but it, but Schitt's Creek really from the beginning was about these four characters and their journey. And it really delivered on that arc for each character. And it, and you know, at the beginning of the show, I would never, I would not have predicted the arcs of those characters at all. But at the same time, when it did end, everything felt right. It felt like the show did right by the characters. Um, so I'm just really in awe in a lot of ways of the show. The writing, so good. Um, the acting, so great. And uh, it's sad to be done with it because it was such a comfort food show. Um, I definitely have a long list of shows that I want to start. It's like almost overwhelming to know where to begin. I feel like this week I'm just sort of in this purgatory 
because I'm watching so much news for better or worse um, that I don't think it's a great week to start anything new, but you know, I have a short list of shows, whether it's uh, pen 15 at some point I want to watch Bojack Horseman, which I've never seen Ted Lasso. I really, really want to watch. Um, there's probably like three or four others off the top of my head that, I want to get to as well. So there's a lot, but uh, it definitely feels like a journey that I've been on with Schitt's Creek. And I'm guessing a lot of people have had that same experience that this was a show that they sort of turned to during the pandemic and that had sort of a special place and will always have a special place because it was such a good show for this moment. So thank you, Schitt's Creek. Uh, to the cast and crew and and behind the scenes folks as well um, for giving us such a great show. And it is a show that um, is so fascinating just from the perspective of obviously it aired on pop TV. Not many people were watching it. It then went on Netflix. Probably most people wouldn't even be able to tell you that it aired on pop TV. And that was its sort of network of origin. It just speaks to where we're at now with, the TV landscape and how, you know, it's like, if it's not on one of the big couple of streaming services, does it even exist anymore? Uh, so it's kind of where we're at, but in any case, I'm glad it was on Netflix at this moment. So good stuff. If you haven't seen Shits Creek, I would say check it out for sure. Um, all right. I will be right back with my three picks of the week. All right, so I'm very excited to talk about my first pick of the week this week because, you know, sometimes I'm on here talking about something that, you know, a lot of you guys have probably already seen, and I'm just sort of restating a little bit what people might already know. Uh, but this week, my number one pick is something that I'm guessing a lot of you guys may not have even heard of yet um, and definitely probably have not seen yet. Um, but if you know, you know. Uh, because what I'm going to talk about is a new movie that came out recently called Psycho Goreman. Uh, actually, I should restate the full name of the movie is PG Psycho Goreman. Um, and I mean, you got to love that title. What a, what a title for a movie. Um, and this is one of those movies that I just watched it and I just had this like total nerd out uh, for this movie because it's an indie movie that is clearly like a lower budget movie, but the craft and the care and the imagination that went into it is so uh, apparent and so cool. And there's so much creativity and fun uh, in this movie. And it's so hilarious um, and it's such a loving homage to sort of 80s sci-fi fantasy horror um, that if you, you know, if you think you share my sensibilities, you're going to want to go run and watch this immediately. And I'll just say up front that you can rent it uh, from Apple, Amazon, uh, on demand, whatever. That's, that's where you can get it on digital. And... Uh, Again, this is one can't recommend enough. It's just such a fun, just perfect sort of midnight movie. 
Uh, I would call it an instant cult classic, Psycho Goreman. Um, it's from a person I've never heard of before, but they're they're on my radar as of now. Um, a writer director named Stephen Kostansky, um, who it looks like he's not done too much before now. Um, he did a movie called The Void, which I have not seen. I, I do remember that movie sort of coming out and, um, you know, uh, I, I remember getting a pretty good response, but, uh, I, am not very familiar with him. He's not super on my radar, but again, now he's one of those people that I can't wait to see what he does next because just the sheer creativity and joy he puts into this movie and the script is so funny and just so random and so, a specific voice. And I love that. I mean, again, you know, as a writer, I feel like there's often so much pressure to kind of conform to the, you know, the norms of a certain genre or to sort of write content. That's very reminiscent of other things that are out there in the market. Um, And sometimes, you know, because of that, you feel a certain constraint that you can't, just get as weird as you want to get, or you can't blend genres as much as you might want to. Um, And there's a certain, I think, pressure to write in a way that's very slick, very polished, um, that feels like professional above all else. You're always trying to show people like, I am a real writer. I'm a professional. I can write this sort of slick, you know, uh, just uh, tightly, put together screenplay that uh, any any big name writer could write. But I also just love movies like this that just feel kind of messy and just random and that just feel like they're coming straight from someone's imagination onto the page and onto the screen. And there's such a primal joy in that um, that you don't see a lot of in movies and especially genre movies because they tend to be more beholden to sort of the whims of a studio. Um, and there tends to be a lot of cooks in the kitchen, but psycho Gorman is just such a um, clear uh, translation of someone's particular voice. And I love that. I thought it was so fun to watch that play out. Um, the premise of the movie is ridiculously fun. Basically it's about sort of, these two kids, two siblings, uh, who are just kind of roaming around their neighborhood one day when they find this, uh, this gem that had been buried in the ground. And it turns out that this gem is from outer space and it is a secret, a sort of, uh, key to controlling this evil monster that has been imprisoned. Uh, and so basically them, you know, with these characters being these sort of, uh, rambunctious kids who are, who are sort of, uh, mischievous, uh, they use the gem to bring this monster back to life and control him and have the monster do their bidding. And of course they agonize over what they should name the monster and they, uh, end up with this amazing name of, uh, Psycho Goreman. Uh, and so 
you know, there's a lot of, of humor and jokes that come from the premise. And what's so fun is that Psycho Gorman is sort of just this classic, like, cosmic villain, like, straight out of a comic book or, like, an issue of, you know, Heavy Metal Magazine or something like that. And he speaks with that, like, sort of classic, you know, cosmic villain, dark side or Thanos type of voice. And he speaks in this very grandiose, you know, comic book villain sort of way. And he just wants to kill and destroy and crush. And uh, meanwhile, he's just being forced to do the bidding of these two kids. Um, and in particular, the sister, uh, uh, one of the, so, so the sister is so funny and such a unique character. She's played by an actress named Nita Josie Hanna. And she is just so good in this movie. She plays this girl who is just like a total monster in her own right. Um, and just is so funny because of that. And she just uses the monster to sort of, you know, do whatever she wants and is so funny about it. And such a little, uh, a little monster, like I said, uh, in the way that she uses Psycho Gorman and the way she treats her brother and, and all that. And it's such a funny dynamic and it's such a unique dynamic. And uh, I just thought it was so good and so funny. And the whole movie, like I said, it sort of has this, you know, sort of throwback type of feel where, I mean, you can, you can tell that the, the creators um, and, and Steve Kostansky, I mean, they clearly are drawing on sort of like eighties fantasy movies and stuff like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons and video games. And uh, they have this whole sort of retro handcrafted type of look to the movie, um, you know, and there's just all these little details, the score too. I mean, everything, the entire aesthetic is like an homage to sort of, um, that like early eighties kind of, um, you know, aesthetic where you, you would see a lot of movies from that era that maybe didn't have like a huge budget, but just had these really, um, ambitious premises, uh, and sort of really ambitious kind of costuming and world building and effects that were sort of, they were overreaching a little bit to achieve, um, but we're able to pull off with just sort of sheer creativity. And I was just kind of awed by the costumes and the, um, the creature effects in the movie. I mean, you can tell everything is sort of like handcrafted and not CGI. And there's almost this like Jim Henson type creativity to a lot of the characters. Um, but every character looks incredible, like these aliens and monsters that are in the movie. I mean, they just look so cool and so imaginative. And I would love to see sort of a making of of how they made these costumes and how they made them so cool looking. Um, and there, there's scenes, like there's a whole sort of extended scene where uh, the monster is sort of giving his origin story and you see him on like these alien planets and like these crazy uh, backdrops. And again, it's like, how do they do this? Like 
again, it's obviously like lower budget and has this sort of, you know, it, it, it doesn't look high budget, but it looks just like art. It just looks, uh, uh, like so artfully made and there's gotta, I mean, there's some truly talented people behind this. Like I'd love to see this team get a big budget, I guess, because, um, it'd be crazy to see what they did with it, but, um, just so visually creative and aesthetically creative. I absolutely love that about it. And again, just like a very subversive, random, uh, dark sense of humor to this movie that I loved, uh, where, you know, it has a lot of the trappings of like a kid's movie. Um, but it has a lot of R rated humor as well. And it has some like, just scenes of ultra violence. It has some scenes of, uh, it has some pretty uh, blue humor, if you will, but it all just works so well. And it got some like major belly laughs out of me. Um, so man, I really dug this movie and uh, it's definitely the kind of movie that I would love to rewatch. I actually, I like, I literally rented it from Apple and when I realized that the rental was going to expire after 48 hours or whatever, I kind of went back and rewatched a couple of my favorite scenes, which I never do normally, but I just wanted to see some parts of the movie again. And uh, it's just one of those movies. Like I, as of now, I don't believe there's any like a uh, Blu-ray or DVD of this movie out shout factory or whoever, if you're listening, you've got to put this out on Blu-ray. I would buy it instantaneously and, and hopefully with some cool, like behind the scenes features or director's commentary or whatever, because I would love to see how they made this movie. Um, and I would buy that, that, uh, that movie on Blu-ray in a second. So shout factory, get on that. Um, uh, this is one I would definitely want, like, in my collection um, and on my shelf. So yeah, I'll just sort of give, you know, this is more than just a normal pick of the week. I, you know, I want to give this like a really hearty recommendation because it's the kind of movie that I know, like all of my, you know, nerdy friends and anyone listening to this who just loves the same kind of stuff I do, like, you know, 80s sci-fi fantasy horror. Like this is a movie that you should support you know, rent it, buy it digitally, whatever, because it really deserves our support. And this is just like a scrappy indie movie um, that I think is just getting word of mouth hype. I mean, I didn't see anything, any kind of marketing or ads for this movie. I only heard about it because a couple uh, film critics that I liked gave it really good reviews and talked about it on Twitter. So I'm trying to do the same here. And uh, I mean, this is a movie definitely worthy of, of kind of the communities, I think, support. So Stephen Kostansky, job well done. If uh, I could and it wasn't COVID times, I would shake your hand and say, well done, because this is a instant cult classic in a movie I will definitely want to revisit many times uh, and show everyone that I can. So Psycho Gorman, check it out. That's my first pick of the week.
All right. So I'm now going to just take a few minutes and talk about something that I think everyone is watching, which is WandaVision. Um, obviously talked about this before when it first premiered, but wanted to kind of check in on the show um, since so much has happened in the last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, I think at first we were just in that phase where it was like, all right, we're in sort of this mysterious uh, setup where we're getting sort of these sitcom parodies and it's all kind of light and fluffy and really funny. And there's just these little hints of sort of the underlying darkness that's that's causing all of this to happen. But I think obviously in the last couple of weeks, we're now in totally different territory where the whole thing has been blown open and we're now getting really into the meat of how all of this connects with the larger Marvel universe. Um, and we're getting into some really big, epic sort of storytelling uh, that has a lot of implications for the MCU as a whole. So, um, you know, if we, if, if, well, first of all, let me say, if you're not caught up on WandaVision or you haven't seen it at all yet and don't want any spoilers, then feel free to skip to the next section. Uh, so I just want to give that warning. Uh, I will get into a little more spoilers here than I normally do just because there's a lot to talk about with where we're at in the show. Um, but I did think it would be fun to sort of dive in a little bit into what we've seen the last couple of weeks. So basically, um, two weeks ago, we had the episode where, um, you know, we had sort of, a, we kind of diverted away from the, the formula that we'd seen to date. Um, and in episode four, we basically got uh, this sort of side story where we pulled back and we saw what was really going on. And we had the return of Cat uh, Dennings, um, which is interesting because, you know, she was, I believe, in the, you know, the first two Thor movies. Um, but we haven't seen her character in quite a while in, in the MCU. Um, and then we had the return of uh, Randall Parks as Agent Wu, who we had really seen, I believe, only in Ant-Man and the Wasp, um, which uh, it was funny. At first, I didn't fully even remember like uh, where that character was from. I, for whatever reason, I was sort of blanking a little bit on the second Ant-Man movie. But we got this really interesting and fun pairing of those two characters as they sort of were investigating what was happening with uh, Wanda and why it appeared that in this town in New Jersey, people were sort of disappearing into this like invisible barrier. And all of a sudden they were in this place that Wanda seemed to be controlling uh, with her powers and was inaccessible to most people. And you couldn't get in, you couldn't get out for the most part. And, was somehow being broadcast like as a TV show that changed eras uh, every so often. Um, and so that was a really fun episode. You know, we got a lot of like little tidbits that were interesting. You know, we saw uh, the character also Monica Rambo, who, you know, comic fans know as a character who was at one point known as Captain Marvel. Um, 
and movie fans know basically as from the Captain Marvel movie, this is now the daughter of the character that was sort of the best friend of Captain Marvel in that film. And now, of course, she's grown up and, um, you know, working for this organization called S.W.O.R.D. that uh, I believe is kind of an offshoot of S.H.I.E.L.D. Um, and we, we may have seen some hints of the formation of S.W.O.R.D. back in at the end of Captain Marvel. So that's a lot of, uh, you know, discussion just to get to the point where we saw Monica Rambo wake up. Um, from basically she had been uh, erased by the snap from Avengers Infinity War. She comes back, you know, however many years later, she finds a world that's that's changed. Uh, her mom has passed away while she's been snapped out of existence. And there's sort of all these new things that she's investigating. Uh, but she's back with S.W.O.R.D. She's, she's uh, back on the job. And now um, we sort of see the flashbacks of how she um, got sucked into this sort of WandaVision world. And so we've seen that. And then we're seeing, you know, Kat Dennings and Randall Park investigate what's going on and sort of studying the, the same episodes essentially that we as an audience have been watching and trying to figure out you know, what is going on here? And is Wanda a villain? Is she acting of her own accord? Um, and and so that was a really fun episode, I thought. It felt more like a standard sort of MCU type of story. Um, it had that tone that, you know, I think WandaVision until now has had a very different, unique tone. You know, people have called it like Lynchian a little bit. People have compared it to other... Um, you know, types of, of content other than the normal MCU sort of storytelling. Um, and certainly it was going to some pretty quirky, unique places. Um, this episode was much more of like a standard sort of, you know, uh, MCU type of, of storytelling and had that tone that we're used to from, you know, a lot of the MCU movies uh, with sort of that very, you know, bantery type of humor and a lot of the sort of uh, fun but epic tone that that we know from Avengers and so many other movies. So, so that was cool. It was great to see Kat Dennings back. It was cool to see Randall Park back. Um, and then in the subsequent episode, just from this past week, this was a big one. We were back to sort of the sitcom world, um, but things were really beginning to unravel and you know, the, the facade that uh, Wanda had created was crumbling to an increasing degree. Vision was starting to have more of a cognizance that things were not right in this world and that um, people were being manipulated potentially by Wanda and he was confronting her about it. Uh, and then the big ending, of course, was that there's a knock on the door, Wanda opens it, and we see in the big moment, Evan Peters from the X-Men movies as Quicksilver, um, who, you know, in the MCU and in sort of comic book lore is the twin brother of Wanda. 
So this was, of course, a huge moment. The whole internet was freaking out. Everyone was freaking out. You know, um, I think a lot of people have been wondering how would they bring the X-Men into the MCU now that, that, you know, Disney has control over the X-Men franchise. And then there was also a question of just like, how would WandaVision tie into other future MCU movies? And I think now we have a much clearer picture where, you know, it seems like we're now kind of opening the door to the multiverse in the Marvel universe. Um, and, you know, we know that the next Spider-Man movie is going to deal with the multiverse. We know that the next Doctor Strange movie is uh, dealing with the multiverse. So it feels like this is sort of the gateway to that next phase of movies in a lot of ways. And, you know, it's sort of the episode sort of ends with Kat Denning's character making a quip of like, did she just recast her brother? And so we don't yet know that this is the multiverse we're dealing with, but I think based on what we know of these future MCU movies, that would be the logical inference here. And it'll be interesting. I think, um, you know, so I guess there's an open question of like, will the end result of this be that the X-Men that we know from the X-Men movies get transplanted ultimately into the MCU. I don't think that's likely. I feel like the X-Men movies, there's been a lot of them, you know, they sort of ran their course over two decades. And I don't know if there's a ton of like gas left in that tank with the, either the original cast or sort of the first class uh, cast that we got. I mean, I think it would be cool to have Michael Fassbender in the MCU as Magneto. It'd be cool to have James McAvoy as Professor X. It'd be cool to have some of those other characters. Certainly, just because we know this character so well at this point, it'd be cool to have Hugh Jackman's Wolverine. At the same time, I do think it'd be cool to have a, a new version of the X-Men in the MCU with a new cast, some new characters at, at sort of the, the focal point. Uh, and, you know, I, w I don't know that I would get too upset if we had a new Magneto, a new Professor X. I don't know that we need that uh, continuation with the old franchise at this point. Um, so we'll see what happens. I think having Evan Peters show up as Quicksilver is kind of a really fun acknowledgement of what came before. And we'll see if we get maybe any of those one-off cameos from other kind of X-Men characters. Um, I would be surprised if we see like a wholesale sort of merging of those two universes. I'm guessing that ultimately the multiverse will be more something that the MCU can play around with and have cameos and tell some fun stories with but I don't think we'll see like a full merging um, of the Fox properties with the MCU. That being said, you know, again, not to diverge too much, but I think one interesting thing will be Deadpool because, you know, Deadpool still does have some gas in the tank as a franchise, you would think. 
you know, there's still a Deadpool 3 to be made. And will that be in the MCU? And obviously that franchise is much more jokey, much more meta. And so they could sort of do just whatever they want with it to be realistic. Um, and just sort of, you know, what happens with Deadpool doesn't necessarily reflect on what's going to happen with the rest of the X-Men, for example. But it will be interesting to see. I mean, could you imagine if Deadpool showed up on WandaVision uh, for a cameo? I mean, that would just be insane. The internet would, I think, break apart if that happened. Um, but, yeah, it'll be really interesting what happens with the X-Men. If you don't know, uh, canonically in the comics, Wanda, a.k.a. the Scarlet Witch, is the daughter of Magneto. And uh, so if nothing else, it'll be interesting if we get that relationship now established in the MCU. And I think that would be really cool. Um, it would sort of feel like it would bring a completeness to the character. Um, but you never know. I feel like at the same time, you know, these sort of Avengers characters are kind of these precious precious gems to Marvel at this point. And I don't know that they want to like mess with them in any way. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, but I did want to just mention that this happened. The door has been opened. We got an X-Men character appearing in the MCU, uh, played by the actor, Evan Peters, who played Quicksilver in the X-Men movies. Um, <clears throat> so, very fascinating. It was a really fun cameo. And very curious where it goes from here. It does feel like the beginning of something big happening for the MCU. Um, but all of that aside, I mean, I think WandaVision as a whole has been so great. Such a fun show. You know, it's give it's give it's given us some really quirky, unique storytelling. But then it's also, especially in the last few weeks, given us that big, epic MCU kind of storytelling as well. So it's been like the best of both worlds. Um, and it's sort of a nice change of pace. Before we get to, in a couple of weeks, Falcon and Winter Soldier, which I think will be much more traditional you know, MCU action adventure. So this was a nice sort of palate cleanser and a nice way to kick off just potentially the next phase of Marvel movies. Now, it's funny because I don't think, I mean, as a comics fan, Marvel is not really known for like telling a lot of multiverse stories. I feel like that's more traditionally sort of DC comics purview. Um, so as a fan, I'm not like that excited about a Marvel multiverse just because there's not like... I couldn't tell you that many like classic Marvel multiverse stories that could be adapted or that there's a sort of a tradition of in, in Marvel with DC. It's sort of different because we have stories like crisis on infinite earths, like flashpoint that are sort of, you know, very iconic stories for DC that it's always interesting to sort of, play with in film or TV. Marvel, not so much, but will be very interesting to see what they do with it. And I can't wait for a new take on the X-Men. I feel like um, 
you know, I've talked before on the podcast about everything that Jonathan Hickman has been doing with the X-Men comics. And uh, I'd be very interested to see if the movies would, you know, potentially adapt some of what he's been doing because it is so different than anything we've seen in film or TV before for the X-Men. I think it would be really, uh, it would make sense for them to go that route when they do bring the X-Men into the MCU. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, I just wanted to nerd out a little bit about WandaVision. And uh, I will be right back with my third and final pick. All right. So uh, for my third and final pick of the week, I wanted to talk about a a podcast that I listened to recently. Um, It was put out by Empire Magazine, which is a really well-regarded movie magazine from the UK. Um, it's, uh, by the way, on a total tangent, um, why don't we have cool movie magazines here in America? I feel like it's one of those things where it's like, like everybody likes a magazine, right? Uh, I mean, maybe that makes me sound like, you know, an 85 year old man or something, but, uh, you know, I feel like in the U S we, people don't really read magazines anymore, subscribe to them. But I mean, I love magazines. I love getting them in the mail. I love the tactile nature. I love lying in bed and flipping through it and reading the articles and seeing the pictures and having it in your hand. Um, And we don't really have, I feel like the magazine industry has sort of unfortunately largely like died out here in the U.S. it seems for whatever reason, a little bit still more thriving in the UK. It's my impression. I don't know. Um, but I know there's a couple magazines that are in the UK that I really like. Um, one example being edge, uh, the video game magazine, which, you know, again, you can sort of like buy it at Barnes and Noble, but it's like, because it's imported, it's like $15 for one issue of the magazine. Um, and then empire is such a great movie magazine. It's so, you know, targeted towards like big film fans and film nerds. And they always have like great articles, great, um, you know, reveals of like new movies. Um, and I guess in their, their latest issue um, of empire, they sort of uh, had a guest editor in the form of the director, Edgar Wright, who obviously is a huge film nerd, very knowledgeable about movies. And uh, he sort of curates, the uh the new issue i guess and one of the big features that that it sounds like they did i haven't read the issue myself but what i understand is that edgar wright did a big feature where he talked to all different film directors about you know in this time where we're all stuck at home and watching movies at home what were their favorite ever uh movie going experiences and like their favorite their favorite communal moments of seeing a movie in a theater which is something that we're all unfortunately kind of missing out on now being stuck at home uh so he got all kinds of feedback as an extension of that empire has a podcast i haven't really listened to it before i didn't realize they had a podcast to be honest but a lot of people were talking about this particular episode where edgar wright basically just has a three-hour conversation of epic proportions 
with Quentin Tarantino, who apparently, I didn't know this either, has been kind of holed up in Tel Aviv in Israel during the pandemic, um, I believe because his wife is Israeli, so he's been over there. Interesting tidbit. In any case, he and Edgar Wright have this very epic three-hour conversation about movies that starts out sort of on this topic of like favorite uh, sort of movie-going experiences and moments. And it's very entertaining to hear them talk. I mean, you couldn't ask for two bigger film fans, two more knowledgeable film fans. And they're both great. You know, Edgar Wright, Tarantino, they're such great storytellers and and talkers, basically, that it's just very entertaining to listen to them uh, talk about this stuff. And man, I mean, Tarantino, he, like as an example, he talks about when he saw the movie Aliens for the first time, in the theater, which was so fun to hear about because I was definitely, uh, I think Aliens came out in what, like the mid 80s, right? Uh, like 85 or something. And uh, maybe later, maybe like 87. I don't know, 87, 88. I'll have to look it up. But um, I was definitely too young to have seen Aliens in a theater. I saw it later. So it was fun to sort of live vicariously through Tarantino's story um about seeing it in LA sort of on opening day apparently James Cameron was there uh at the theater and you know Tarantino just kind of goes into detail about what moments really popped the audience and got people excited and it was interesting I, I put this on Twitter uh as well kind of as I was listening but as a writer it was interesting to think about, you know, I think as a lot of the advice you hear as a writer is very mechanical. It's all about like how to structure the movie or the script uh, the right way, how to create character arcs, how to, um, you know, a lot of it is of that nature. But this was a good reminder that there's a magic beyond any of that that's not as easy to teach or, or sort of impart on people. But I do think something that sometimes gets lost in these kind of different uh, panels or bits of advice that go out to writers is it's about creating great moments. And, you know, it's hard to explain how to do that. And I don't know that I know the right answer but it, i think it is if nothing else it's something that's it's good to remind people to strive for that because so many great classic movies kind of what puts them over the top of it is that they have these iconic moments um and it's like how do you how do you write to that and i think some of it is just you know, I think there. I think some of it is just sort of an instinctual thing, and some of it is just also putting yourself in the shoes of the audience and continually writing in a way that is designed to make an audience, you know, applaud or gasp or whatever it may be. You know, obviously, there's only so much you can control. Um, as a writer where, for example, Tarantino, 
in the podcast was talking about one of his favorite moments from the movie Rolling Thunder, which is a movie I love. It's a revenge movie from the 70s with Tommy Lee Jones and William Devane. And he was talking about this super badass moment from the movie that I immediately knew what he was talking about when he started getting into it, which is basically a moment where like uh, William Devane has vowed revenge on these guys and uh, he sort of goes to recruit his old uh, army pal, Tommy Lee Jones, to help him, you know, carry out this revenge. And, uh, you know, there's this just super badass scene between them. And, uh, it, you know, Tarantino is talking about how it always elicits this just amazing audience reaction. And I know exactly what he was talking about. Um, but a lot of it is, I think, Tommy Lee Jones' delivery of the line. And so there's always going to be, you know, like, of course, an actor is going to influence how good of how good a moment is. You know, the score is going to influence it. The cinematography is going to influence it. But as a writer, I think that you can, you know, there's there's moments where you can either sort of take the low-hanging fruit route and just do sort of a serviceable job of getting to the end of a scene. Or you can take a step back and, you know, put some work into, okay, I can just do like the, the simplest possible scene here, or I can think about what's a way to really put this over the top. And some of it is just a mentality of always thinking about like, what are the, what are the big tentpole moments that I want to see in this script? Um, and where can I just really have fun and go crazy and, um, you know, sort of lead to the, and you can build around those moments basically. But I think it's important to think about what those moments could be. Um, and then sometimes I think it just happens. Like sometimes just as you're writing, you'll think of like, okay, this would be cool. And it's just being cognizant and capturing that in the script. So I do think it's something worth reminding writers about of like, think about does my script have those, those good moments or is it just sort of bland? Um, so yeah, that was, that was a really interesting conversation. Um, and then the second half of the podcast goes in kind of a bit of a different direction where I guess apparently while they've been quarantined, Tarantino and Edgar Wright have been sort of exchanging uh, movie recommendations. And I guess what they've been doing recently is there was this whole, it's super fascinating. Like, I don't want to spoil the whole podcast, but basically like there's already been a lot of articles about this where I guess there was an interaction between Edgar Wright and Martin Scorsese, who also is known as just like one of the ultimate like film historians. And um, basically, I guess Edgar Wright had written a letter to Scorsese saying he, he wanted to know like, what are your favorite ever British films? And I guess just literally off the top of his head, Scorsese named about 50 movies that he thought were sort of some of the quintessential British films. And a lot of them are, you know, pretty obscure. I think British films in general can be a little obscure other than a couple of the, the classics like Lawrence of Arabia that everyone sort of knows. Um, but, uh, 
you know, Scorsese wrote this whole list, and I guess Tarantino and Edgar Wright have both been going through that list and comparing notes. And also, you know, that list then leads them down other rabbit holes, which they sort of talk about, whether it's a particular actor, director, whatever. So they go through all these movies. And if you're a film nerd, it's just is like this. It doesn't get better than this because they're hearing about all these movies. A lot of them I'd never heard of before. I mean, because Tarantino and Edgar Wright are talking about movies that they had never heard of before before this. So if they hadn't heard of them, you know, they're a little more obscure um but there's so many different sort of directions the conversation goes you know they talk about everything from like hammer horror films which is something i definitely want to see more of um they talk about other certain directors um actors and there i I literally took some notes from it um and i started trying to search whether it was on amazon or you know wherever to see like where are these movies even available? Because there's some you can find on DVD, some you can't, some are on you know iTunes to rent, some are not. So it is crazy. I mean, you know, something they were talking about was how in this world we live in now, it can be hard to find a lot of these films. Like I think we now have an expectation because we have these streaming services with like infinite, seemingly infinite amounts of content. We have digital rental services like Apple, iTunes. We have Amazon where you can find like any DVD that you want. We think, oh, everything is available. There's still a lot of stuff that just isn't available. And I think it's a little scary because what happens is, you know, there's less incentive now for um, the stuff to be made available. The DVD market isn't what it was you know, in the early 2000s when just all the content catalogs were being mined. Um, And so I think if something didn't come out then, it's less likely to come out now unless someone like a Shout Factory or a Criterion sort of proactively goes after it. So it was interesting to hear that part of the conversation too. But ultimately... I mean, there's just so many interesting movies that they talked about. Um, it was a lot of fun to hear. And just a great conversation if you're a movie fan. So if you are at all a movie nerd, seek out this Empire podcast with Edgar Wright, Quentin Tarantino. It's great stuff. Um, and that's all I've got for this week. So thank you guys for listening. Hope I, uh, you had some good content recommendations from this episode. And I will see you next.